0: This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group,
1: the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com.
0: Welcome to Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Noah Balmer, and today I'm excited to speak with Dr. Chuck Eastam. Dr. Chuck Eastam is an adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University, a lecturer at Georgetown University, and a computer scientist with a robust consulting practice. Additionally, he's authored 41 books on topics ranging from forensics to cryptography and over 70 papers on digital forensics. Dr. Eastam is a sought-after expert witness. He has PhDs in computer science, nanotechnology, Technology, a DSC in Cybersecurity, and Master's Degrees in Science Systems Engineering, Applied Computer Science, and in Education. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Dr. Easton. I'm happy
1: to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, let's get right into it. So uh, how did you first get started in expert witnessing? How does your uh, how did you go from um, your background in computer science becoming such a sought-after expert?
1: Well, it was about 18 years ago that I was asked to do some work on a case that specifically involved Microsoft. And I had a number of Microsoft certifications and was a Microsoft certified trainer. Plus, I actually lived in the area the case was happening, which would reduce cost for travel. So I think a lot of those factors had to do with me being hired on the first case. But after several years of working with various cases, it just became more and more of a part of my professional life.
0: Thinking back to that very first time that you were contacted, how did that go? Were you actively seeking to become an expert witness or were
1: you sought out? I was not seeking to be it. In fact, I wasn't even sure what it involved when someone <laughs> first contacted me. Uh, you know you what? what? You're not I... the first uh,
0: person to, to mention that. It seems like a <laughs> lot of the people not only were called out of the blue, but didn't know
1: that being an expert was even a, was even a thing. The only thing I knew about expert witnesses is what I'd seen on Law & Order, so I wasn't quite <laughs> sure what it entailed.
0: Sure. So so how did that first call go? Um, you know, did they tell you where they were at in the case? Did they tell you exactly what was needed? Did you feel well prepared? How did it go? And uh thinking back on that, what would you have changed, you know, as as somebody who's now been doing this for so long? Uh, how would you prefer to have been approached in the first place?
1: Well, given that they knew I'd never done it before, they gave me a great deal of information because they knew I was a novice. Um, So I don't know that I would do anything different on that very first case. Um, There's a lot of things I've learned since then. I think the real key to doing this is the same as doing anything else. You should never, ever be satisfied with the quality of work. For example, Mm -hmm. if I testify at a trial and the client who hired me wins the case, I am still driving home thinking about I could have done a more thorough report. I could have been more clear in my testimony. How can I do better next time?
0: Hmm. So, it, it how much of that is is attorney preparing you for what you need to do and what you need to know, and how many how much of that is just simply you wanting to improve you know the quality of your uh, expert witnessing, as it were.
1: Well, I think most of it's the latter, because I've reached a point now where I actually had a trial recently where the attorney looked at me and said, you know, you've been in more trials than I have. (laughs) So, uh, Generally, the preparation is a little less from attorneys these days. My last, I guess, eight or 10 depositions, deposition prep amounted to the lawyer talking to me for a half hour and saying, you feel good? I said, yes, and that's it. Now, years ago, it used to be an all-day preparation, mock cross, that sort of thing, but that doesn't usually occur anymore.
0: Uh, Is that something that you typically do in person, or is that typically online these days?
1: Everything everything was in person until the pandemic, when everything uh, absolutely was online, and now I think people have accepted that you can do things, as we're doing right now over Zoom, so you... You see it a mixture now, some Zoom, some in person.
0: Do you find that there's either one is more advantageous?
1: Well, if I'm totally frank, I love the Zoom better because when it's over, I'm home. I just get up and go back <laughs> to what I was doing as opposed to driving or flying home.
0: Uh, do you have any interesting cases? Obviously, I know sometimes you can't really get into specifics because of confidentiality, but, you know, are there a couple interesting cases, interesting fact patterns, something that, uh, you know, what was interesting to you as an expert, or there was an interesting twist that you had to think about or change, uh, the way that you typically do things?
1: Um, you know, any stories for us here? Well, I do have a few stories for you. And, uh, one of the courses I teach at Vanderbilt is a uh, graduate course in digital forensics. And I always devote one lecture per semester to what I call expert witness follies. Uh, <laughs> things I've seen experts do that just shocked me to no end. Uh, without naming names or particular cases, of course, there was a patent case some years ago where the opposing expert had just a phenomenal CV. His, his resume was fantastic. And there was some discussion about... Java code. That was part of the case. So I began looking over his his report, and I began to suspect he didn't actually know much about Java. And the attorney who hired me said, that's simply not possible. Look at his resume. I said, do me a favor. When you take his deposition, put a printout of the code in front of him and ask him to walk you through it. Mm -hmm. After struggling for approximately 20 or 30 minutes, he finally admitted under oath that he'd never written a line of Java code. So I cannot Uh understand why he would take that job. I think sometimes people like doing the work or they like to pay or whatever it might be, and they take on cases that they really shouldn't. They should look at the person who called them and say, look, I may be an expert in many things, but this is outside my expertise. I'm just not up to it. Now, where that's one exemplary case, I've seen similar issues. Uh, I've seen forensics experts who may know a lot about forensics, but for example, this case involves Macintosh forensics, and it comes out that they have zero experience with it. Hmm. It's going to come out at some point, and it's shocking to me how many experts are willing to still try.
0: How much of that is on the attorney for not properly vetting their expert, and how much is it on the expert for agreeing to be, you know, an expert in something Uh, that they're not truly an expert in. And do they always know? Do do they always know when they first talk to the attorney that it might touch on some things that they're not quite as
1: familiar with? Well, I obviously can't speak to what other people are told, but in my experience, every single case I get approached with, there's a lengthy list of technologies involved to get a copy of the complaint. And even if you don't, as soon as you start looking at evidence, it should become apparent to you that, no, you're not really the expert here. And Ultimately, I think that's on the expert. The attorneys yeah. sometimes don't know enough about your field. To use an example, let's say you needed a medical expert. Do you really sure. know the difference between a neurologist and endocrinologist? If you're an attorney, you might not. You just well, that's why you need an expert.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that's why you need an expert. So I think it's ultimately the expert's responsibility. But again, being totally frank, there are some attorneys out there that are simply looking for someone with letters after their name that will say what they want them to say uh, and some experts fall into that trap and do it the problem with that is the facts are going to come out and you usually end up just hurting your reputation i have always viewed my role as not to drink the kool-aid as I, as they say mm-hmm. but to as soon as possible tell an attorney if there's a flaw in their theory of things Say, look from a technical perspective here's the weaknesses we need to address or maybe you need to settle or whatever because I'm not going to take a position that's just untenable. It's, it's, it's going to hurt my reputation, and I'm the one that has to stand up in front of a jury and say all this, so I'd better be certain I'm comfortable with it.
0: And they're doing oppositional research sometimes, or always, right? So they're trying to impeach the other side's expert witnesses. Is that something that you've come against a lot?
1: Well, a lot depends on the nature of the case. For example, patent cases involve a lot of money at stake, And they will almost always do oppositional research. They are Mm -hmm. going to try to undermine you uh, to the point that uh, sometimes they take ridiculous positions. Two years ago, in a deposition, an attorney tried to suggest to me he was the opposing attorney that because I have so many different degrees that they must not be legitimate because no one could really get (laughs) degrees in that time. Jack of all trades defense. (laughs) Well, no, I think he was trying to see if it would upset me and make me angry and give a reaction. But I Uh, just looked at him and said, well, the universities in question thought they were legitimate, so. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, tell me about your strategy for maintaining composure in cross and when being impeached by the other side.
1: Well, in the early days, it was hard. My very, very first deposition didn't last long, and I'm sure I didn't do a good job. And Mm -hmm. I left there, I knew I'd been stressed because I'm in an air conditioner room, but when I left and took off my suit coat, From the sweat stains on my shirt, you would have thought I've just been working out for two hours straight. But (laughs) what I eventually realized is this is not personal. The other person is not attacking you as a human being. They're trying to win a case. And that became very clear to me years ago when an attorney who had really gone after me on the stand at trial, a month later called me to hire me. It (laughs) wasn't personal. Once you realize it's not personal and they're just doing their job, at least for me at that point, it becomes very easy to maintain my composure. How important is, you've you mentioned
0: winning a couple of times, how important is it as an expert that your side, quote unquote,
1: wins the case? Is that important to you at all? To me, it's not at all. And there are experts who put it on their resume and put it on their website. To me, it's not for two reasons. One, the idea of an expert is not to win a case. Unlike an attorney whose ethics tell them to be a zealous advocate, You're not supposed to be a zealous zealous advocate. You're simply putting out facts. And then from a practical matter, let's say you have a two-week trial. And let's say I'm on the stand for a day, day and a half. That still means the bulk of the trial wasn't me. It Mm -hmm. was attorneys. It was fact witnesses, things like that. So even if they win, it would be inaccurate for me to say I won the case. There were so many other things going on.
0: So you don't take cases or not take cases based on how quote unquote winnable they might be. In other words, you take them on. Is this something I'm an, you know, an adequate expert in? Is that right?
1: That would be the first thing. And then I have to actually believe that the attorney's position makes sense. Um, Okay. I have had a few cases where very early on I said, I I don't think I'm your guy because I don't think I can say under oath what you'd like me to say.
0: (laughs) Do you turn down a lot of cases?
1: Not a lot. Just a few. And... A lot of attorneys actually appreciate the frankness. There's a handful mm-hmm. that don't. There's a handful that want what I frankly call sock puppets, someone to mm-hmm. get up and just speak what they say. But most attorneys don't. Most really want to hear the truth. And they want an expert to tell them, look, here are the technical issues. They want you to be able to explain it first to them and then later to a judge and a jury. How do you go about... so? you know, if an attorney comes
0: to you and you're, you know, you have the appropriate expertise for the case, uh, but, but something comes up and you might not know, you know, everything there is to know about it. Um, do you, do you typically spend a lot of time trying to gain new knowledge during the course of a case? Or if you don't know it, is that simply, you know, I don't know this and I'm not going to know it, uh, during this case. And I'm not an expert in that particular thing.
1: Well, that's going to depend almost entirely on what the difference is between your level of knowledge and what's needed in this case. So, for example, let's say a new version of Windows comes out tomorrow, Windows 12, and I've been using Windows since version 3.1. Well, obviously, Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of experience with Windows 12 yet because it just came out, but I'm very comfortable that I will be able to gain that expertise in short order, and I would immediately go get a copy of Windows 12, start reading papers on it, start digging into it, experimenting, and get that extra experience. Now, on the other hand, if some new operating system that I never heard of came out tomorrow, and someone wanted an expert, I would have to say, look, I, I can't do it. I, I don't have a foundation.
0: Speaking about, you know, having a foundation, um, How do you maintain your expertise? Obviously, you're in technology. That is an ever changing topic. That is something that every single day there's something new, something becomes obsolete. We learn something different that we thought was one way and is now another. What does it mean to you to be an expert and how do you maintain that
1: expertise? Well, what it means to be an expert, the actual courts have ruled that it's essentially someone who their training or experience can provide understanding to the trier of fact, the judge or jury. So you have more knowledge than an average person. However, I take it to a bit higher level. If I'm hiring a mechanic, I'm hiring one because I assume they're an expert in my model of car and they can really take care of business. So I feel that's what an expert should provide in court cases. The way I maintain that is I'm just a tad bit obsessive compulsive. I am always learning something new. Um, I have an absurd number of industry certifications, uh, 74 at this point, because I frequently will go back, study up and take a new certification, not because I need it. There's no one out there saying, well, we'd hire you if you just had one more certification. (laughs) I do it because that's my way of, okay, I've studied up on this new thing. But how do I know I really know it as well as I should? Well, let's go take that vendor certification. A couple of years ago, I've been working with Microsoft Azure for a while but I wanted to ensure that I really knew it well enough. So I went and took a bunch of Azure certifications just to validate that, yes, I at least as far as Microsoft is concerned, I had sufficient knowledge in Microsoft Azure.
0: Is that something that you recommend for other experts, especially newer ones? You know, uh, going a little bit bu- be above and beyond what their current level of knowledge is and continuing to, you know, learn more and get certifications? Are these things that lead to a more successful practice as an expert witness?
1: Well, I would say whether or not you pay to take a certification or to go back to college is not necessary, but to constantly be learning, yes. And there are a lot of free resources out there. For example, I'm a member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, IEEE, and they have online courses that are free, video courses. You can brush up on circuit design or Wi-Fi protocols or what have you. And you've got to constantly be brushing up. Now, that's more obvious in technology, but that's really true in any area um
0: i'd also i'd like to pivot and talk a little bit about uh timing so when do you when you have a new case when do you start preparing say that the case is still a month or so off i've had experts tell me that they really don't start get getting going until it's really just a a week or two before because you can forget things or things might change vis-a-vis the case unfolding or whatnot do you have kind of a timeline that you go by or do you just kind of see how it
1: goes well, it very much depends on the type of case. For example, digital forensics. I've testified a lot in phone forensics related to traffic accidents, trying to determine what the driver was doing just prior to the accident. Those mm-hmm. you can start working on a week or two before trial because it is the facts are what they are. But patent right. cases get so complicated. I have had patent cases where the work with, for myself and the attorney was ongoing for many, many, many months before we're at trial that's very common in the patent world because there's so many nuances to understand and there's so much back and forth between the parties before you ever get to trial
0: right and the and the rules and laws are different in different fora right so if you're, do, are you often employed in different markets do you have a lot of people um you know from different states and even different countries asking you for your expertise?
1: Usually it's within the U.S. for testifying because there are very different rules in other countries. Uh, I've done some consulting in European and English and Australian cases, but not testified there. But as far as testifying cases in the U.S., in, they can happen anywhere. I've been in Florida and Delaware, Philadelphia, Texas, California, all over. Do you feel
0: adequately prepared for the nuances of those different fora by the attorneys? You know, if you live in Florida, for instance, do they, uh, you know, do they tell you, you know, in California, it's a little bit different. You know, these are the kinds of different things to look for. We, it operates, the law operates a little differently, might change the way you do things or is expertise kind of Mm -hmm. expertise and it doesn't really matter quite so much.
1: Well, if they're federal courts, it's pretty much just the same everywhere. If it's a state court, usually the attorney will tell me local nuances and local rules that I should be aware of.
0: And have you felt adequately prepared in, in that respect? Yeah. In general. Yes. You you had mentioned
1: earlier that there
0: might be some attorneys, the minority of them, as you said, that are kind of want more of a sock puppet. Um if you don't know off the bat that your attorney is going to kind of be that way, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with opposition uh, to to your own counsel and suggesting things and telling the attorney that they're wrong about something?
1: Well, first of all, make sure you're correct. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> first of all. And secondly, do it with some um, tact. Uh, be very careful about how anytime you're going to tell someone you think they're wrong, that's a delicate situation. And you need to explain, say, for example, uh, you could tell the attorney that if I take this position, you understand the other side's going to have an expert. And here are all mm-hmm. the ways I would attack that position if I were hired by the opposing side. And I'm willing to bet their person does the same. So let them mm-hmm. know how it could undermine their case. I have never had it get so far that I had to threaten to quit or uh, someone wanted to insist on me saying something I didn't want to say. I've never had it go that far. I can't say it's never gone that far for another expert, but it never has for me. There's usually a little back and forth on exactly what positions I'm comfortable with versus what they would like me to be comfortable with. But it usually gets resolved fairly easy with not a lot of problems.
0: Do you have any general advice for attorneys, especially when they are bringing on newer expert witnesses who don't have a lot of experience? Are there things that um, you know would make them feel more comfortable or more adequately prepared or assist the case in some way?
1: Well, the first thing I would say to the attorney side is if your expert has not testified a lot, it does not matter what their credentials are. You as an attorney, things like depositions in courtrooms are just your normal day-to-day life to a person doing it the first time, that is incredibly intimidating. And it's Mm -hmm. going to be almost impossible to over-prep them. Uh, You really need to do mock uh, cross-examinations, make sure they understand all the things that you know. For example, what do you expect the opposing counsel to say? What do you expect them to do? Do you know the opposing counsel and know their strategies and how they cross Mm -hmm. people? Give your expert as much information as possible. And I would even say to an experienced expert, more prep never hurts. But to sure. an attorney with an inexperienced expert, if you don't do a lot of prep, you're asking for a disaster.
0: Is knowing the other or the, the other expert witness on the other side is that important to be prepped on?
1: It depends. Uh, I've done this long enough. There are names I know really well, and there are people out there that I know. I respect them, although we've been on opposite sides. They. When you have two really qualified experts that are really doing their job, they're probably going to agree on 90%. It's that 10% gray area where there's a struggle. On the other hand, I have let attorneys know occasionally that such and such expert, I happen to know him and he will take absurd positions if his attorneys ask him to. So be prepared to cross those kinds of things.
0: That's interesting. Uh, Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask about closing cases. So, when, when a case is over, it can end in a few different ways, right? There, you know, there can be a finding or it, there can be a settlement. And, you know, some experts I found there's some confusion over when a case ends, how they're supposed to be contacted, how they get paid. Um, in your experience, um, is our attorneys typically pretty good? Or do you have to be fairly proactive in finding
1: out where everything stands vis-a-vis the case at large? They're usually pretty proactive because, if nothing else, if the case stops, I usually get a pretty urgent email saying, "Put your pen down, <laughs> stop adding billable hours to the to the fee because we're done." Um, I also find that as far as the getting paid thing, the only time that's been a struggle is when the the client for the attorney, the attorney's client, is a very small entity and they're stretching their budget to get there. And my advice to experts is, if you think that's going to be an issue. You can insist on payment in full before you go to trial. Do you typically
0: bill hourly um, for regardless of whether it's, you know, a report or a deposition or, you know, anything? Is it always an hourly?
1: That's the other thing. Not only do I bill hourly, but it's always the same rate. I've seen some experts that bill higher for testimony. I think that's Mm -hmm. a mistake because it looks like you're charging for your testimony, and I'm not, I'm charging for my time and my time is worth X amount regardless of how I spend it. Hmm.
0: That's really, do, do you have any, uh, you know, this, is this is a question that I get fairly frequently. Do you have any stories about um, getting paid or being contacted in an unusual manner at the end of a case or anything like that? Or has it always gone pretty, you know, in, in a more or less simple, simple manner?
1: Well, many years ago, I did have a case where actually the client who hired me won. They won a large settlement. It still took me over a year and a half to get paid my final bill because they were a small company running out of money. And that's when I started my policy that now it's a huge company hiring me. They're going to pay me. It doesn't matter. Uh, but for smaller entities, particularly patent work, I'm getting paid every month as I work. But when it comes to trial, I let the attorneys know that your client's going to need to pay me. Before I step in the courtroom, and I explain to them it's because it's gone badly before. Hmm. Do you
0: is this usually outlined in in a contract?
1: You can put that in your uh, engagement letter. With the, this kind of work, it's usually called an engagement letter as opposed to a contract. Uh, or you can just, as you get close to trial, let them know that look, we're going to have to straighten things out financially. Not to mention, it's really great. On the stand when the opposing counsel asks you, so if if your side doesn't win, you may not even get paid. Well, I actually got paid before I got here, so no matter (laughs) how, my opinion is not tied to getting paid. That is a great showstopper to the opposing counsel when they're trying to impeach your testimony. Yeah, you know, I, I've
0: a lot of people, a lot of other experts have told me how important always telling the truth is. And I guess that ties into it, right? You know, that's part of of telling the truth is is not having the appearance of any kind of conflict of interest.
1: Well, the appearance of impropriety can be as bad as impropriety, but I would have to absolutely agree with the advice to always tell the truth. As an expert, your career will recover from being wrong, even very, very wrong. You Mm -hmm. will recover from cases being lost. You don't tell the truth, even if it doesn't rise to perjury and a charge, that would end your career. But even if it doesn't rise to that, Mm -hmm. if you simply get a reputation for someone who plays a little loose with the truth, you're done. It's over. Absolutely. That's great advice. Dr.
0: Chuck Easton, thank you so much for joining me today at Discussions at the Roundtable. I really appreciate you.
1: My pleasure. Happy to do it.
0: And we'll see you again next time on another Discussion at the Roundtable.
1: Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps.